If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Ms. Barbecue. And I'm Wenzel Jones. It is just eight days until National Coming Out Day on October 11th, so we've gone to our vault for our favorite coming out story, and it's called Catch. And Steve Pride talks to filmmaker Alden Peters, who documented his own coming out in a new film called What Else? Coming Out. And we'll give you a chance to win your own DVD copy of the film. And Michelle Marie Gilkison, or I guess that is Mrs. Michelle Marie Gilkison, because she was recently married. Yes, right. Congratulations. She is a woman now. <laughs> Continues her conversation with West Hollywood Poet Laureate Stephen Rains. And Wenzel chats up Drew Jogi about his one-man show, Bold Patterns and Bright Colors. But first, the national and international news from This Way Out. <laughs> I'm Carol Myers. And I'm Jason Proctor. With NewsWrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending October 1st, 2016. Uganda's oxymoronically named ethics minister, Simon Lakotu, made good on his threat earlier in the week to arrest anyone who tried to hold an LGBT pride celebration in his country. Police shut down such an effort on September 24th that had attracted more than 100 people to a beach on Lake Victoria outside the Ugandan capital, Kampala, before the celebration could even begin. Leading Ugandan activist Frank Mugisha told reporters that most of the attendees were ordered into minibuses and escorted to a police station, apparently for questioning. One frightened young man jumped off a moving minibus on the way and was critically injured. Mugisha said that everyone on the bus was traumatized. All the detainees were later released without charge. Ugandan police disrupted a pride-related trans beauty pageant at a Kampala nightclub in August that also led to catch-and-release detentions. That raid prompted organizers to postpone further pride events until September, clearly with no better outcome. LGBT people, and those perceived to be, face official government hostility and entrenched societal homophobia in Uganda, enhanced by a number of far-right U.S. evangelicals who have made regular visits to the country peddling debunked Pray the Gay Away programs. Private, consensual, adult gay sex is illegal in the East African nation under a colonial-era law that already penalizes acts of gross indecency with lengthy prison terms. Proponents of a bill first introduced in 2009 to punish so-called aggravated homosexuality with execution continue to push a less severe but equally repressive version of that proposal in Parliament. Uganda's highest court declared a 2014 version of the Anti-Homosexuality Act to be unconstitutional. 
Masamade, a four-day film, art, and performance festival celebrating LGBT Afro-Caribbean culture, was scheduled to kick off on September 27th in the Haitian capital of Port-au-Prince. But the entire event, organized by the country's leading LGBT advocacy group, Courage, was shut down by the government after organizers in the hosting venues were threatened with violence, including murderous attacks and arson. Masamadi was launched in 2009 in Montreal and has also been successfully held in Brussels. This was to have been the first Masamadi to be held in Haiti. Port-au-Prince Police Commissioner Jean Deton-Léger confirmed to reporters that he had issued the order to cancel the festival. He cited the need to protect public safety and Haiti's moral and social values. In a local broadcast interview, Léger also claimed to be acting on a complaint from several senators who charged that the queer Afro-Caribbean festival would be a provocation and a challenge to the traditional family model. Although there are no laws criminalizing same-gender sex in Haiti, the country's LGBT citizens remain largely underground because of government repression and social stigma. LGBT Haitians, or those perceived to be, are frequent victims of mob violence. At least two people died recently in murderous anti-queer assaults in Port-au-Prince. In the latest HB2 related North Carolina news, some 60 major investment groups representing more than $2 trillion in managed assets joined several high profile entertainers, professional and collegiate sports associations, and more than 200 businesses in calling for the U.S. state to repeal its discriminatory law. HB2 forbids local governments from passing ordinances banning anti LGBT bias and requires trans people to use birth certificate based public bathrooms. Matt Patsky, chief executive officer of Trillium Asset Management, said at a September 26 news conference that, without repeal, North Carolina is headed for a state government-inflected recession. Officials in a number of other states and several cities have banned non-essential government travel to North Carolina to protest HB2. California, which boasts the world's sixth-largest economy, has taken an additional step by also banning non-essential government-funded travel to Mississippi and other states with discriminatory anti-LGBT laws. State Assemblyman Evan Lowe wrote the legislation that was signed into law by Governor Jerry Brown this week. All North Carolina travel bans have been issued by chief executives, such as governors or mayors. Assemblyman Lowe's measure makes California's the first state legislature in the U.S. to pass a law banning travel to all states that discriminate against gender and sexual minorities. Meanwhile, the Board of Supervisors for the City and County of San Francisco took it even further on September 27th by voting unanimously to stop doing business with companies headquartered in states that specifically deny civil rights protection to LGBT people. Tennessee joins North Carolina and Mississippi in that category. The measure doesn't affect existing contracts with companies based in those states, but will likely prevent the city from renewing them. Bank of America is among the major companies that could be affected by the new ordinance. It was actually founded in San Francisco, but moved its headquarters to Charlotte, North Carolina in 1998 after merging with Nations Bank. Bank of America has an $8 million depository and payroll services contract with San Francisco that expires in August 2018. And finally, Alabama Chief Justice Roy Moore set some sort of judicial record this week by being suspended from office without pay for a second time. 
The nine-member Alabama Court of the Judiciary voted unanimously to remove him from the bench this time for defying the U.S. Supreme Court's June 2015 civil marriage equality ruling by telling state probate judges to continue to deny marriage licenses to same-gender couples. The ethics panel removed the far-right Republican from office in 2003 because he refused a federal court order to tear down a Ten Commandments monument he'd installed at the state judicial building. Voters astonishingly re-elected him as chief justice in 2012 after he lost a race for the GOP gubernatorial nomination. Moore's attorney, Matt Staver, who represented infamous Kentucky County Clerk Kim Davis, says his client will appeal the decision to the Alabama Supreme Court. Moore has repeatedly warned that opening civil marriage to lesbian and gay couples would destroy our country. One of his ardent supporters said his removal amounted to the persecution of a Christian official. The suspension by the ethics panel this week removes Moore for the rest of his current term, which was to run through 2018. Republican Governor Robert Bentley will appoint a replacement to fill out the rest of his term. Moore's judicial career is virtually over. State law forbids the now 69-year-old jurist from running for chief justice again because of his age. That's News Wrap for the week ending October 1st, 2016. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Jason Proctor. And I'm Carol Myers. Remember, you can hear all 30 commercial-free minutes of This Way Out on the podcast at thiswayout.org and on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. All right, coming out to a sibling isn't always easy. And IMRU contributor Peter Dell remembers how it went for him in his award-winning audio essay, Catch. For my brother and me, playing catch became an escape very early in life. The dead-end road in front of our house became a bullpen one day and an end zone the next. My brother and I played catch so much because our parents fought. Graham and I sat and listened through the walls. I sided with my mom's overly emotional pleas while my brother found my dad's logic more compelling. We found that if we went outside, we didn't hear their arguments. We also liked playing catch because it provided a way to talk about intimate things without being intimate. We didn't have to look directly into each other's eyes. Tossing a ball around made us both feel like men in the most macho, stereotypical way. He tossed me a knuckleball. Are they fighting about money again, I asked. They never fight about anything else, he answered, as I tossed him the ball back. I heard him say that we may not have enough money to pay for the broken water heater. Fastball, high and to the left. Ball one, I added. Same thing happened last month, too, when the car broke down. My brother windmilled his arm to loosen it up more. Is that why Daddy had water instead of dinner the other night at Joe's Cafe? Yep. As the older brother, he always knew better than I did what was going on with my family.
When I finally came out to Graham, it wasn't a coincidence that we were playing a game. A video game this time. Graham, there's something I want to tell you. He shot at my alien, missing. Yeah? He asked. I'm gay. I fired on him this time, trying to capture his enemy base. The seconds ticked down on the clock. Are you serious? My shot went wide. His turn to fire back. Yeah, that's the real reason Christine and I broke up. He carefully aimed. Wow, that's pretty amazing. I mean, thanks for telling me. I really like knowing about your life. He scored a thousand points. The game paused and we were forced to look at each other. I just wanted to tell you before you found out from someone else. I haven't told mommy and daddy yet. I wanted to talk to you first to see what you thought. I'd wait a while to tell them. There's too much going on in the house right now with both of us going off to school. This past Christmas, my brother flew in from Chicago to be with us in our Southern California home. We don't see each other often anymore because 2,000 miles separate us. He's a flight instructor now on its way to becoming an airline pilot. My brother now plays on volleyball and softball teams in his neighborhood. He enjoys learning the sport, whatever it might be, and he still plays better than most people on his team. We played catch again for the first time in years. My parents don't fight very much anymore. They seem beyond that now. This time we played catch to have fun. We talked about his wife and my boyfriend and what our plans were. He sent me deep for a fly ball. I caught it over the shoulder, something I had tried for years to master. My brother imitated the roar of a crowd as I made my victory dance in the imagined right field warning track. Even though I had been with my family for a week, I felt for the first time like I was home. I wonder if it's traditional to start with your siblings, because as he was doing his essay, I thought, well, I started with my brother. Um, kind of. I started with my, my closest friends who are kind of like siblings, mm-hmm. and then I kind of had to come out to my brothers and sisters after I was already out of the house. Well, it was a lovely piece, and I'm glad we... It was Got it out beautiful. Of the it was absolutely beautiful. I love that. Well, these days, coming out is often not something you reflect back on in an audio essay, but something you record with your phone as it happens. And documentarian Alden Peters took it a step further by turning his coming out into a film. The documentary Coming Out follows young filmmaker Alden Peters on his journey coming out gay, capturing everything on camera as it happens. It's raw. It's intimate. It's even funny. And after a long festival run, Coming Out is coming out on DVD from Wolf Video. My name is Alden Peters. I'm the producer, director, and also the subject of Coming Out. And what is Coming Out about? Coming Out is a feature documentary that depicts my own coming out process all on camera as it happens from childhood through the coming out and then the year afterwards of what happens now that I've told my family and friends. What was the span of the filming? We filmed for about a year and a half, two years for some of the pickup shoots, but I had a lot of archival like VHS tape stuff that my parents were recording from early childhood. So you see this whole process for almost 20 years. 
When you say we, how big a production was this? There were a team of five core people working on the film. Myself, the other producer, Pat Murphy, co-producer Brenda Lopez, and then two editors, Alex Familian and Megan Mancini. But during the filming of especially the coming out scenes, it was mostly my older brother who I would give the camera to to film me coming out to the other siblings or family members or a friend to record me coming out to other friends. What surprised you in making this about not just filmmaking, but about yourself? Did you Mm -hmm. learn something about yourself? Yeah, and also putting everything on camera sort of forced me to be much more self-reflective than I would normally. But because I kept going back, looking at journal entries, thinking about why I was in the closet, what made me insecure about my sexuality growing up, creating the film allowed all of that to happen. When did you know? In hindsight, I would say from a really young age, but I was in denial for a lot of years where I thought, you know, these are normal feelings that all of my straight friends are also having, which is not the case. Well, coming out, the reactions you go, were they what you expected? Did anyone surprise you? Everybody surprised me. I think what I imagined people's responses to be were typically always the opposite. Those that I thought would have no issue kind of had their own little time that they needed to themselves to process that news and others that I thought might need more time were supportive right off the bat. Do you think more people would think, oh, oh, yeah, I knew that? It was like the one girl. but I was certainly like hypersensitive to that. So I kind of just was paranoid and assumed that everybody knew anyways, despite how hard I was trying to hide that aspect of myself. It was interesting to hear people's inner dialogue as they're kind of saying, oh, well, no, I didn't really think that you were, but I kind of did or thought about it. There was this back and forth that even though it wasn't completely articulate in that moment when we were filming, you know that that was attached to this thing that we're all doing of like, maybe somebody is, maybe they're not. But then you kind of put people in these little boxes that they eventually were like, I guess he's not. Aunts, uncles, etc. How do they react to this? Extended family really found out about the film when I posted a trailer for it. We did a crowdfunding campaign, and for a lot of people, that was the first time that they had any inclination that I was gay. And they experienced it like everybody else, which was through this film. And also, when I was getting the crew together, I was like, hey, saying to Pat and Brenda and Alex um, and Megan, who are friends of mine from film school, you guys, I have this project that I want to do, and I think we should all kind of work on together, and it's about me coming out of the closet. And they were like, wait, what? Are you coming out of the closet to us? In that moment. So it's kind of always been wrapped around this film. When was the film finished? The film was finished in August 2015. It's not that long ago. Yeah, and premiered in September 2015. What is it like to watch your personal story with an audience? Watching it with an audience is fun for a couple reasons. The first of which is that all the audiences respond differently. Some audiences don't get that it's a funny film until halfway through. Some get it right away. Some people find certain things entertaining while others find it less so, at least in the humor aspect of it. It's always interesting after a screening when people come up to me and I've shown them this personal process about me and my life and they feel like they know me. And it's always kind of bizarre when somebody speaks with me with familiarity that I don't have to them. To me, it's like strangers coming up to me, which is interesting. But I still hate watching footage of myself and hearing any audio of myself. 
And it took a long time after a lot of editing for me to get used to what is on camera and my mannerisms and the way that I'm speaking and acting and how uncomfortable I am in a lot of moments took a long time to get used to. And watching it with audiences really helped with that because I got to experience them experiencing it for the first time, which after editing the film for years, you kind of lose any emotional connection to that journey and that experience within the film. And then you get to feel it again with an audience around you. Has coming up become easier? There's still a lot of work to be done. But this youth coming out and finding their identities online before ever talking to another gay person potentially in person before coming out, the effects that social media has on the coming out process and also forming communities online instead of in person has really changed the experience for LGBTQ youth. And you see elements of that in the film also. And it's really changed for kids in rural America. Right. Because it's not geography-based. You don't have to go to a library to get access to resources to learn about the community. You don't have to go to a local community center to uh, find other queer people. You can have access to anybody around the world online. While you are geographically potentially very isolated in rural parts of the country, you do have access to community online. What do you hope the audiences take away from the film? I am hoping that the audience of queer youth and their families especially can watch this film. It's funny. It's very family-friendly. It's a positive, uplifting film that in some ways is kind of aspirational for the coming out process and how pleasant and wholesome it can be for a whole family and friends group. And I'm hoping that that can really affect change in those who can't even comprehend of the option of accepting their child when he or she comes out. We premiered in Utah at a documentary film festival in Utah, and the response there was unlike anything I had ever seen before because I made this film in New York, and we're here in L.A., right? And I think we're in these bubbles, and most of the time when I talked about doing a personal coming-out story documentary, I would kind of get an eye roll. What do I have to say that's new about coming out of the closet especially if it's a positive, funny film. Why is that necessary? And the best feedback I got during test screenings in New York was, that was better than I expected. So I kind of for so long thought that that was as good as my film was. It was just better than somebody expected. Then we showed it in Utah. And people at multiple points in the film erupted into applause After the screenings, people were weeping, some were hugging me, and were telling me these stories of, especially with the LDS Church, right, that their child came out and they disowned them for years and finally embraced them. My parents were at that premiere and a couple was talking to my father and telling him how they accepted their child, but then their family was excommunicated from the community because of that, of recent suicides that had happened there and People were very thankful because in this community, nowhere is there the story that says, hey, your child can be gay and that's all right. You can embrace them and still be like a wholesome family unit. And I didn't realize the power that it had until we were in Utah and experiencing all of that. This has been a conversation with documentarian Alan Peters about his film, Coming Out. Find more information online at comingoutdoc.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
Well, I am glad to hear that this is going to be a funny, happy story. Because remember when coming out stories were always so serious the, and fraught with despair? Oh, they're always drab and, and oh, full of violence and all that kind of stuff. Now, I was trying to think of the best. I was trying to, that was my phone. I'm on Facebook Live. I was trying to think of the best coming out song that's out now. No. And the Diana Ross song. I know. It's a classic. Still comes to mind. So you can have a chance to have this movie for yourself. Just give us a call at 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735, which spells KPFK. We yes. have three copies to give away of Coming Out. So come on please and get it. give us a call. Yes. In the meantime, still to come, Mrs. Michelle Marie Gilkison waxes poetic with Stephen Raines. And Winslow Jones talks bold patterns and bright colors with Drew Drojay. Drogi. Drogi. So don't go away. We'll be right back. <laughs> Billy Strayhorn's Open Life, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Billy Strayhorn was just a drugstore soda jerk. That is, until he began collaborating with Duke Ellington. Moving to New York City, Strayhorn became a stylish fixture in the city's nightlife, rubbing elbows with high society, the patrons of Harlem nightclubs, and the black gay subculture. After a year living in Ellington's household, Strayhorn moved in with musician Aaron Bridges. Unconcerned about appearances, he lived openly as a gay man despite the times. Strayhorn's sexuality was not an issue in his collaboration with Ellington, who even began letting Strayhorn finish his uncompleted songs. But much of Strayhorn's work went uncredited or was credited to Ellington. Some explain this by saying that, because Strayhorn was gay, he tended to avoid the spotlight. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Dean Christensen. Hi, I'm Amanda Burse, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974, on KPFK-FM, 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org. Super callous, fragile, egocentric, braggadocious Likes to throw big words around and hopes that we all notice If he keeps repeating them, they might just make him POTUS Super careless, fragile, ego, extra braggadocious Um, are you really gonna vote for this guy? Mm, are you really gonna vote for this guy? Um, are you really gonna vote for this guy? Uh, are you really gonna vote for this guy? He says that he's the man and thinks he's got the Midas touch But does he have a plan to fix the country? Not so much And if you're not convinced by all of that hyperbole He says shut up, just buy a stupid but hat and vote for me. Hey, super careless, fragile, that's why Hillary's relaxed. Time for Clinton might as well sit back and play the sax. His wife erased her emails and now Trump wants total access. Then once hell has frozen over, he'll release his taxes. Um, are you really gonna vote for this guy? Um, are you really gonna vote for this guy? Um, are you really gonna vote for this guy? Are you really gonna vote for this guy? He found a word that sounded smart and used it all day long. But even Webster's dictionary said he got it wrong. So if you're undecided or you hate the other sex, remember in November how he likes to sign his checks It's super sleazy, fabricating, sexist, and obnoxious Even just the thought of voting for him makes me nauseous If you like America, you'll keep him out of office Superficial, chauvinistic, arrogant, and thoughtless Um, you really gonna vote for this guy? Who the hell's gonna vote for this guy? Of course you can say it backwards, which is docious, braggocentric, egofragic, hella stupid Did you ask me a question? Nope, I didn't say anything 
So when his words escape him and he hasn't got a prayer, he's feeling kind of dizzy because he sucked up all that air. He better keep his guard up because she might take a swing. And you know what else I prepared for? I prepared to be president. Super calculated adolescent braggadocious If you hate both nominees, remember he's the grossest Meanwhile, look at Jill and Gary sipping on mimosas Super callous, fragile, egocentric braggadocious I think I did a good job Super callous, fragile, egocentric braggadocious Okay, you need to stop that Welcome back. You are listening to IMRE Radio. I'm Wendell Jones. I'm Miss Barbecue. That song coming out of the break was from out gay YouTube superstar Randy Rainbow and was not intended as an endorsement of anyone because that would be deplorable. <laughs> I loved it, though. It was funny. It was funny. Now, as promised, more of Michelle Marie's conversation with West Hollywood city poet Stephen Rains. I'm always curious about how any person who has a marginalized identity or marginalized identities, how they self-identify in terms of being an artist who happens to be a queer or being a queer artist. How do you identify? I think I'm so obviously gay that I don't feel a need to ever state that. To me, it's so clear in how I present and interact in the world and my interests that I don't feel a need to say, like, oh, I'm a gay poet. I, I think it's just so obvious that I'm gay. So just saying poet is maybe the less obvious. Also, my experience of being gay and a writer is that the first time I had sex with a guy, I came home and wrote about it in my journal. And I was 16 years old. And a few days later, I shared this journal entry with my friend Stephanie Recht. And she loved it. And she kept saying, you should be a writer. I blindly followed that advice. It, it just seemed like such a good idea. Like, yeah, I should be a writer. And so my identity as a gay man and my identity as a writer happened within the same week of each other. So they're so intricately connected for me. I also think that I have this gay sensibility that I bring to everything I do, but especially with writing. Sometimes I hear people say things like, you don't want your art to be didactic. Good art doesn't tell people what to think, or it's not a lesson in how to be a political or social being. What would you say to that? Hmm. I think that didactic artwork or didactic writing, I was really attracted to when I was young. You know, I would say at age 16, some of that work really moved me. And now I'm interested in subtlety a bit more, but I think tastes change over time, right? And I think it's really just about personality, and it's about what one wants and desires at a certain time. I don't like discrediting a certain kind of style. I think that there's a place for it. Maybe not a place on my personal bookshelf, mm -hmm. but I think there's a place for it in the world. Do you think that activist writing is automatically didactic? That's a good question, and I think it would depend who we're referring to and what their experience is about the poet Minnie Bruce Pratt. She's such an activist, and yet her writing doesn't have that didactic quality to me at all, and she's someone who's written autobiographically. She has a collection about a custody struggle with her children when coming out. She also has this wonderful collection that was just decades ahead of its time, She, He, which talks about her relationship with someone trans and this like meditation on gender and gender expression. And she has another collection behind the money machine, which talks about class. 
So, you know, when I think about her work that I find so inspiring and moving, it seems rooted out of her activism, but is not work that should be set over a bullhorn. We have anthologies of queer literature in an effort to make sure that people can find this work in places where it's still not readily available. Do you imagine a future in which the queer anthology doesn't need to exist or shouldn't exist? Or is there always a place for it? I want a place for it. It's how I discovered the writers I liked. You know, I would pick up an anthology and there would be one story that I would find haunting and I would keep going back to it. It's how I discovered the writings of Bernard Cooper, who then became one of my favorite writers. So how are we exposed to different perspectives and even the people who didn't end up becoming my favorite writers that I was shaped by reading those stories and I might not pick up their novel. So I'm going to push a little further. You know, I, and I think that there's a similar uh, sort of discussion around marriage equality. We're just like everybody else mm-hmm. logic or approach insisting upon being absorbed into the mainstream as a way of gaining access to the same rights, the same recognition, and the same treatment. It's different, probably, with art, and we still have the canon that is becoming more diverse in terms of race and gender and sexual orientation and class. Should we want to not have to have an anthology where all of the queer authors are collected because we hope that they're so integrated into the mainstream curriculum in schools or the mainstream of what's being sold in bookstores or on Amazon, as it may be? Or is it always a goal to celebrate that work by anthologizing it? That's such an interesting thought because I, I guess maybe I don't envision a time when queer people are going to receive just as much recognition in the canon as straight people have been. And the same thing is true of people of color. I feel like I should preface this with saying, like, some of my best friends are straight. You know, I really believe in building our own table instead of waiting to be invited to dine at someone else's. That's how I've been living my life. And I think so highly of queer people and what we do and what we've overcome and how we interact in the world. I don't need rose-colored glasses to love the queer community. I think we're beautiful, and I don't think that we need to emulate straight people or their conventions in order to be of value. I think that the things we do are enough. Sometimes gay people, their value systems can coincide with other straight value systems, but I don't believe in this giving up of identity just to become more legitimate in someone else's eyes. I think that's dangerous, and I actually don't think that's what the road to happiness and self-acceptance is paved with. Will you read for us? Sure. When I was talking earlier about my first sexual experience, this is a poem that's in my collection, Inheritance. It talks about that moment. The poem is December 4th. Marked on my calendar, celebrated every year, a festivity those not close to me don't understand or think of as an oddity, a boasting and bragging of a sexual adventure. It is the anniversary of when I first had sex. Sixteen and in my mother's car, an older guy with deep red lips, my accomplice, who swallowed and in that moment I felt accepted. I note the day because it is the closest thing to a gay conception date, 
There is no other marker or identifier. It is the moment that my life changed. A world opened up to me, and I never thought of going back. I only thought of more, more times, more experiences, more men, and I got it all. I sought it out like a pirate with a treasure map. I did it all. It felt like I did the entire city. And maybe, in a way, I did. It isn't really when I became gay. I know virgins who aren't any less gay. But it is the date of when the gates of gay sexual pleasure opened, when I became familiar with a man's touch. An elusive date, similar to the stray cat we found. We marked her birthday as the date she came to our house. It is impossible to gauge when she was born. All we know is when she came home. When we were talking about the subtlety of poetry and queer identity, the Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Mary Oliver has a poem, Wild Geese. It's not a poem that states lesbian or gay. It doesn't have that didactic quality that we were talking about some work having. And maybe when I was younger, this poem wouldn't have appealed to me, but now, now it really does. And it has the line, you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. I think that change happens through both, through people who can share their poetry with a bullhorn and other people like Mary Oliver who can share their experience and their positive message in a softer way. I think that sometimes queer people do have the most interesting things to say. We are people on the margins. We're used to being on the outside looking in. So I think that we're great observers of culture. And queer writers bring that to their work, those observations. That's an observation of detail, an observation of dialogue and dynamics. And I'm interested in that. I think it's to most people's deficit to overlook the contributions that LGBT people bring. Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with me. It's been a joy. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a conversation with Stephen Raines, city poet of West Hollywood. This is Michelle Marie Gilkison for IMRU Radio. And I think one of my favorite things about Stephen Raines is even though he is the city poet of West Hollywood, the last time I saw him, he was working the door at Akbar for your show. Yeah. So he's, he's a diversified. Man, he's truly he a man of the people. Here's what he does. And exactly. we'd like to congratulate Renee Evans, Mike Harvey, Catrice Jackson, and Teresa Nunez for calling in and getting your own copy of Coming, Coming Out. Out. Yes. Now, you'll notice that in tonight's show, Steve and Michelle Marie are the type who ask thoughtful, intelligent questions. <laughs> that portion of the show is over. <laughs> Now we're into the simple questions of delight, Mm -hmm. (laughs) where Wenzel interviews the wonderful and delightful Drew Droge. Because he's doing a show, Bold Patterns and Bright Colors, at Celebration Theater. Yes, go ahead. Actor, writer, cult figure, multi-hyphenate, Drew Droge is here with us at IMRU. Thank you so much for coming to talk about your new project. Oh, I love cult figure. I know. You are. There's no denying it. But... Before Better than start, cult leader. It is. So you are bringing back your show, Bright Colors and Bold Patterns. Yes. Why? And why now? Well, because I love it. I love doing it. I've been working on it off and on for about three years and did it at the Versus Theater on Pico. Molly Prather directed it three years ago, and it was just after gay marriage had gotten legal. 
it's a, sort of a reaction to that. I was invited to a wedding, a straight wedding, in which they asked the guests not to wear bright colors or bold patterns to the wedding. And it just, it struck me as such a title. I was like, oh my God, that's such a title. And what is that saying in context with gay marriage? And what are we doing in, in the name of equality? And I just wanted to raise that question. And I realized that like if I got up as me and like sort of talked about it, I would be I would be all over the map and be like, you know, I really want everybody to pair up and be married and I want people to be happy. But what are we losing in the name of equality? What does this mean? And why are we struggling to be like everybody else? Is this a good thing? And what is this? So I created a character who was very much at odds with it, which it was it was stronger and easier to be like this person who's kind of having a meltdown in his life. And so I wrote this character and I've been doing it off and on and I haven't done it for about a year. I had done it in New York just for like a weekend at Ars Nova, ran into somebody who wanted to produce it. My friend Michael Yuri was like, I want to direct this. I want to take this to the next level, put this on New York stage. So it all sort of came together. And then it just, it was this sort of happy accident at this point with Celebration Theater had been interested in it for a while in L.A. So we worked out calendar-wise. We were like, oh, I'm able to go to New York and do it for a weekend and then come here and open it in L.A. So, and this takes place before the wedding or at the wedding? The night before the wedding. Is it yeah. a shower or? No, it's at a house that where some of the guests are staying. And it's a Friday night in Palm Springs on the deck in front of the pool. Everyone's getting trashed before the big day the next day. So I, I'm basically like, I also wrote this character because I wanted to write my dream role. I wanted to write a big, loud, gay mess of a character, which you just don't see. We're not writing those kind of roles for ourselves. Forever, it was the stereotypical, mincing, sassy, gay guy with the catchphrase would walk in and za, 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 goodbye. And then now you see so many gay characters that it's great that we've normalized what gay is. And there's so many different sides of gay people. But... Now you have a lot of characters who kind of are, for lack of a better word, boring, that come in. They're like, hey, dude, I like guys. Deal with it and move on. And that's great. But I wanted to write the character who was kind of a lunatic and kind of a mess and who is funny and is the life of the party, but sometimes goes too far and sometimes hurts people's feelings and is himself hurting a lot. And I just didn't really see that. And I was like, no one else is going to write this for me to do. So... And what was it you wanted to say about gay marriage or just marriage? Because I, I find the premise so interesting because I, too, had a friend a few years ago who the groom in this couple insisted on a palette of sand, mint, and coral. Wow. And, and the woman who stood up for him wore bone, and he's not speaking to any of us anymore. He's a, I'm sorry. That's disgusting. That's a terrible thing. I'm sorry. That's crazy. How dare you wear bone to my wedding? I know. How is yet, that not sand? What is the? I mean, I, I mean, I could put them together. Sand is a warmer tone of white. Oh my God! This is what's wrong with everything. This is what we fought for. I know. This is like, come on. You see how much how my voice raised. I think it is obviously it's a wonderful thing that's happened and we're having kids come out at 11 and 12 years old and we are moving towards such a better place for lgbt people 100 percent. but i also just wanted to raise that question of when you're no longer made to feel other are we going to be seeking out gay culture gay history i'm a big believer every year i make people, friends, I force people to go to Outfest to like, let's learn about our people, learn about our history, learn about this collective language, this collective sensibility that we have. And are we losing that because it's becoming so 
accepted. So I'm playing a character who is all referential, and I, there's another younger character in the show who doesn't get any of my references. And I wanted to make that sort of statement. Also, I think we're kind of ridiculous about our references, and I wanted to show that I'm, you know, I throw references around, and I'm like, oh, you don't know what that is? Because I think that that's very much like us. We love to do that. So I just wanted to explore that. And I don't really have... I don't have a conclusion at the end. And I don't think there is one. I don't think there is like an answer. But I wanted to keep that question sort of in the ether. I wanted to keep it up in the air to where the people are like, oh, what is this? And are we losing our otherness? And our otherness is beautiful and wonderful and, and is bold and is bright. That's what I wanted to like keep. We should be wearing bright colors and bold patterns to our weddings. That's why we are gay. That's why we're here. We are a gift, not like we should be hiding the shadows wearing bone or, or, or <laughs> God forbid, wearing bone instead of sand. I know. It's important. I wanted to discuss your longevity in a very tricky field. And I hate to say as a gay performer, but as a gay performer. Sure. Because the first time I remember seeing you was in 2007 when you were doing Debbie Does Dallas at the Key Club. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I know. That was back in my reviewing days, so I saw everybody. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, you have been kicking around a while and been quite good at it and good at reinventing yourself and coming up with new things. Thank you. Could you just share some wisdom from your experiences? Well, oh, wisdom. (laughs) You Dame Drogi. Uh, yes, well, <laughs> always arrive on stage 10 minutes early. No, that's so nice of you to say. When I moved here 17 years ago, I started taking classes at the Groundlings. And what I learned early on at the Groundlings is just how to create my own material, how to write. You can't just be an actor there. Doing improv makes you a writer. And this business, it is tricky. And it is like, and, and as a gay performer, it's tricky. When I go to auditions for a gay role, I walk in the room and the bar is so much higher. It's like the funniest, most talented people I know are all in this room competing for five lines on some show. Whereas like when it's not a gay role, oh, it's an easier get. Like we all talk about it. But you have to write your own material. Every bit of success or whatever you want to call it that I've had, ups and downs, it comes from me creating my own stuff and not waiting for the phone to ring. That's my advice to anybody is like, learn how to write and learn how to work on a shoestring budget, put it together, and just start working at it. And you get better by doing it. For me, like doing a million shows helped me like not freak out about being perfect. And I, you know, and I was, and still can be like really rough sometimes and be like, okay, great. And I have another show tomorrow. So dust it off and try again. Speaking of self-created material, and I know you're sick to death of talking about it, <laughs> but your Chloe Sevigny creation, how much longer do you think she can go on? Because to me, she's so separate from the actress you base her on, because I really don't know the actress's work at all. But you, your creation, I find endlessly fascinating. <laughs> I, you know, To me, it could run forever. But It has been the weirdest, craziest thing in my life. I did that in a sketch show in 2002. At Celebration Theater, actually, where I'm going to be on Monday. I was in an all-gay sketch group called The Deviants. Everybody else was doing these impressions of different people. I put on a blonde wig for something else. I looked in the mirror and I was like, I look like Chloe Sevigny. And, of course, at that time, everyone was like, really, who is that? I mean, she had already been nominated for an Oscar. And, I mean, I follow all that stuff. So I knew who, you know. And I was fascinated by her whole world. And it was so different from mine. And um, so I started doing it. And then... I have, like, I always say I've actively tried to kill it for so many years because I would do it on stage and then I'm like, oh, I think it's done. And when I was performing at the Groundlings, my director was like, you should do Chloe. And I was like, oh, my God, I've done Chloe for like three years. No, that's done. And then 
did it there. Then my friend Jim Hansen was like, I want to make videos with Chloe. And I was like, I do not want to do that. I'm not a drag queen. No, thank you. Not what I'm into. For about six months, he sat on me. Finally, we did videos. And that's what sort of took off and became my calling card and the most well-known thing that I've ever done. And even with the videos, I'll take a break and not do them for a while and then get brought back into it. Yeah, it has nothing to do with the real Chloe anymore. The more makeup I put on, the less I look like Chloe Sevigny. Because we really do, our features are very similar and we do look a lot alike. And she's very natural. And also, I really do think that Chloe Sevigny is incredibly talented. I think she's beautiful. I don't mean to make any statement against her. I prickle and bristle when people talk crap about Chloe Sevigny. That's not what I'm trying to do. The world around her is fascinating to me. And now, I mean, I like I just made a video where Chloe went to the moon. Twelve Sundays prior, I descended into a mad glamour. Upon spotting my empty hay bale at Olivier Thaiskin's trunk riot, Samuel L. Jackson arrived at my doorstep with a series of demands. Number one, immediately gargle with freshly congealed mink oil. Number two, eliminate water. Number three, find yourself at the summit of Mount Maru and look up. My Chloe is an alien. She lives in her own world. She no longer exists in this world. So when people send me like pictures of Chloe 70 at, at a party or uh, they'll want to tell me Chloe stories, which I love hearing and love seeing, but I have nothing to do with her anymore. And Chloe goes to the moon with classic French film references. The yes. Brothers, I know. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. We're all about the references. So to get back to bright colors and bold patterns, why are you only doing it on Monday nights at Celebration? Because we've had people, we've invited them on the show and we're told, oh no, Monday night is the night of rest for the theater. Oh, thought, no, oh. Not, not for the <laughs> sketch performer. We have no nights of rest. Well, it was just their schedule. They have a main stage show. It's called Charm and I'm going to go see it tonight. I'm so excited. And they have a show running on the weekends. And so it was their sort of open night. And also like I... I'm so used to doing the weirdest, craziest, like, Tuesday afternoon taco buffet, slap on a wig kind of show. So, you know. And when this is done, what's next for our Drew? Well, hopefully I'll go back to New York. There's talk of doing the show again in New York. Also, I just signed on. I think I can say this. Next year at Celebration Theater, I'm going to be doing Charles Bush's Die, Mommy, Die, which I'm so excited to do. And I'm also, I'm on the Logos Cocktails and Classics, which is like a movie, not a movie review show. We watch... Old or older movies and drink cocktails, and Michael Urie hosts that. And so um, I just shot more episodes of that. So that'll be airing through the fall. And... Or as we call it at our house, Tuesday. <laughs> exactly. So thank you so much for coming by. Those who want to see it, you're running Monday nights through November 14th at the Celebration Theater. You can go to the website, celebrationtheater.com. That's the fancy spelling on theater or brightcolorsandboldpatterns.com. And for those of you who haven't been to Celebration in a while, it's now at Lexington and McCadden. It's no longer on Santa Monica. That's now a pot shop. Right, exactly. So don't, don't go to that space. Well, you can go to the pot shop first and well, then come yeah. to my show and you'll love it. It never hurts. It never hurts. And 
And as fate would have it, because we were not on the air last week, Steve and I went to see the show, and it was really, really good. I'm going to have to go see it now. I love Drew, so I want to go support. He is so smart and so quick. It's just like one of my favorite one-man shows I've ever seen. Oh, awesome. Ah, So that is it for tonight. Yes. Our thanks to IMRU coordinating producer Steve Pride. Hey, Steve. Tonight's director, Mrs. Michelle Marie Gilkison. Board op Federico Garcia. Hey, Federico. And our Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imreradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted every Tuesday afternoon. And while you're there, please like us. <laughs> and a reminder that the KPFK Fun Drive begins tomorrow. Yes. So please, 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 if you have any extra change you might like to throw our change, way. Change, sir, change. Please, just a small copper coin, sir, is all we ask. Please, sir. If you have any change to give, yeah. give from the heart, give from what you know, okay? Because you don't have shows like this all the time. Yes, and you don't get fairs without putting some money up in it. Nope. So by all means... Be ready to donate. Yes, please do. And coming up next, Informativo Pacifica in Espanol. Oh. Did you like that? Well done. And we'll close with a song for all the kids out there who think they're alone. From the 1970 feature film based on the television series H.R. Puff and Stuff, here's Mama Cass Elliot singing Different. Good night. Good night. When I was smaller and people were taller, I realized that I was different. I had a power that set me apart. I learned to take it, to use it, to make it. It's not so bad to be different, to do your own thing and do it with heart. I'd wonder what hex I was under What did I do to be so different Then I discovered some others like me Wonder 